and welcome to the Headlines podcast, a podcast about some of the interesting, important and entertaining stories you might have missed in local newspapers this week. It's a bit like a newspaper review, but for local newspapers and news websites. I'm Chloe Lavasuch and it's the week ending Sunday, January 31st, 2021. This week in York, we've been marking a year since the first coronavirus cases in the UK were confirmed here in the city. But it's also a week in which I've been writing about plans for a restaurant where customers are served by robot waiters. Apparently this could be the future of going out for dinner during a pandemic. And one of my colleagues has been trying to contact Arnold Schwarzenegger for a tribute to an old bodybuilding friend. It's nothing if not varied, this job. In national news this week, the UK passed the tragic milestone of 100,000 lives lost to COVID-19. It's also the week in which a new coronavirus vaccine was found to be nearly 90% effective and will be manufactured in the northeast in Stockton-on-Tees. And a 1969 documentary about the royal family, which was banned by the Queen, was uploaded to YouTube. It was quickly deleted after a copyright complaint. It's been a busy week in local newspapers too. Actually, I've read some really brilliant and fascinating stories in local news this week. In this episode, we'll hear about plans for flying taxis to launch in Bristol in two years' time, a bin man who was fired for kicking the head of a snowman, and a new political party calling for Brighton to bring down the government. I was also lucky enough to be joined by Jim Waterson, media editor at The Guardian, for a chat about local newspapers. Jim reports on all areas of the media, from hyper-local news websites to television, newspapers and international media, including YouTube and Facebook. He was previously political editor for BuzzFeed UK and has reported from all over the world. And he once fried an egg on the streets of London using the heat reflected off the walkie-talkie skyscraper. Jim is also originally from York, so you will hear us chat a bit about the city. Skip ahead to about minute 10 to listen to that interview. Links to all stories in this episode can be found in the description or follow us on Twitter at The Headlines Pod. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to keep seeing stories like this reported in the news, please support your local newspaper and news websites and journalists. For now, though, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, Unfortunately, bin men have been getting quite a lot of criticism in local newspapers this week. In Chester, someone filmed a bin man giving his colleague a haircut on the street. In Kirklees, a bin man was filmed urinating on roadside bins. And in Hereford, a bin man was actually fired after being filmed kicking the head off a snowman. All of which does make you wonder if people get their mobile phone cameras out as soon as the bin lorry rocks up. Back to Hereford. On Saturday, four of the most read stories on the Hereford Times website were about the poor bin man who got caught on camera kicking the snowman. According to a story in the paper by journalist James Thomas, the three-year-old boy who built the snowman was left in floods of tears after he saw a bin man boot the head off his snowman. His parents say the little boy always likes to watch the bin man out of the window and waves at them. And they say the bin man should think harder about his actions in future. Which I would imagine he will because the bin man has since been fired after the family contacted the council about the incident. If you think that seems a bit harsh, you're not alone. A follow-up story by journalist Charlotte Moreau says more than 500 people have now called on the bin man's employer to reinstate him. The first flying taxis are to be trialled in Bristol in two years' time. This is a story from the Bristol Post by journalist Tristan Cork. 
The taxis are effectively giant people carrying drones, according to the story. And they could be flying around Bristol by 2023, after a project to develop them was backed by government with a £2.5 million grant to undertake a feasibility study. The technology is being developed by a Bristol aircraft manufacturer, and according to the story, the air taxis would be electric, they would take off and land vertically, so a long runway would not be needed, and they would have pilots on board. The cash is going to be used to find out if there is a market for the technology, how people feel about it, and eventually for a series of live demonstrations. You may have seen news this week that singer Rita Ora's team paid a London restaurant £5,000 to break Covid rules to hold her 30th birthday party. That's according to police, who were at a council licensing committee, who said covering local councils was a boring job. Local democracy reporter Julia Gregory was at the licensing hearing. In a follow-up story, she says regulars have defended the restaurant, Casa Cruz in Notting Hill. It says the restaurant manager got a panicked phone call from someone close to the pop star when paparazzi turned up at the address where the party was initially due to be held. He was asked to open up the restaurant for the party for £5,000 and switch off the CCTV for half an hour, which he agreed to do. Police turned up and tried to get into the building, but they couldn't. They say the windows were blacked out with black sheets. They have now asked Kensington and Chelsea Council to revoke the restaurant's licence. But 44 neighbours have written to the council to defend the restaurant. One said the restaurant has helped to cut crime in the area, and another said it was a one-off lapse in judgment during exceptional times. I should just say that the barrister for the restaurant said the manager acted alone, made no financial gain, and changes have since been made to the CCTV at the site. Rita Ora has also written on her Instagram account that she made an error of judgment. And police investigations are ongoing and the licensing committee is yet to make a decision. The UK could soon get its first North Korean politician. That's according to a story in the Berry Times by local democracy reporter Chris Gee. North Korean defector Ji Hoon Park could stand for election as a Conservative candidate in the next local council elections. The 52-year-old is believed to be the first person of North Korean descent to stand for election in the UK. And she has an incredible and fascinating story. According to the article, she escaped from North Korea in 1998. Famine had struck her country and her father and uncle starved to death. Ji-hoon and her brother feared they would die too if they didn't escape, so they fled to China. But they were separated at the border and her brother was sent back to North Korea. Ji-hoon became a victim of human trafficking and was sold into a forced marriage to a Chinese farmer with whom she had a child. Then in 2004 she was arrested and sent back to North Korea, where she faced torture in a forced labour camp. She developed gangrene and was thrown out of the prison by the guards. A kind stranger nursed her back to health. She then came to the UK. Apparently most North Koreans live in London and Ji-hoon is the only one in Bury. She said she wants to run for councillor to help voiceless people be heard. A living memorial could be created to those who have lost their lives to coronavirus in the UK. This is a story from the Birmingham Mail by local democracy reporter Joe Sweeney. A Wolverhampton councillor wants a tree planted for every single life lost in each part of the city. 
Councillor Jazz Dehar says if she can get the project up and running, she would like to see it rolled out across the whole of the UK. She has also suggested a date be chosen to commemorate those who have died, similar to the Remembrance Day services. She said a date in March could be chosen to coincide with the date the World Health Organisation declared a global pandemic. A couple of planning stories for you now. Waltham Forest Council is giving the developer of a huge housing scheme a discount on the project because the developer warned of delays caused by COVID-19 and Brexit. The size of the discount is not known because it was decided in private. This story is from the Waltham Forest Echo by local democracy reporter Victoria Munro. It says the Coronation Square development will see 750 homes, business space and a GP surgery, leisure centre and nursery built on the school centre site in Leighton. But developer Taylor Wimpy told the council that COVID-19, Brexit and unforeseen costs mean they now do not expect to make as much profit from the scheme. Victoria points out that the company currently estimates an operating profit of £293 million for 2020. But they say their lower forecasts could significantly delay the work until conditions improve. The council has agreed to reduce the price of the land and it will buy all 1,762 square metres of commercial space being built. The council has not revealed the cost of the discount it is giving to Taylor MP or the amount it is paying for all the commercial space, saying it is commercially sensitive information. But the article does say half of the homes will be affordable and the council will receive money from renting out premises to businesses. Another planning story for you now, just because I think this one is a great idea. Campaigners have created a how-to guide to advise people on how they can oppose unpopular planning applications. This story is from Nation.Cymru by local democracy reporter Alex Seabrook. It says campaigners in Cardiff have created a jargon-busting guide on how communities can object to planning applications. As anyone who's ever sat through a planning meeting will know, the planning system can be confusing with lots of jargon and only strict reasons why applications can be rejected. The story says the Cardiff Civic Society has written a guide to help people understand the sometimes confusing planning process and learn how to make their voices heard. It points out that often the reasons people give for opposing applications do not fall into the category for rejecting applications, so their opposition ends up being dismissed under planning laws. And finally this week, a new political party is calling for Brighton and Hove to declare open rebellion against the UK government. This is a story from the Argus by reporter Jody Doherty-Cove. He's a great reporter and he's well worth following. The story says climate activists Burning Pink wrote to every councillor in the city demanding they follow their moral duty and help to bring down the British government. Apparently Burning Pink's list of demands for Brighton range from total rebellion to asking for the council's fleet of vehicles to be replaced with electric ones. The requests are reported to have gone down badly with Tony Janio, the independent councillor, who is said to have told the group to stick their demands where the sun don't shine in an email. But Burning Pink say a campaign of non-violent civil disobedience will start on Monday, February 15th, if the demands are not met.
And now, here's the interview with Jim Waterson, which was recorded before Christmas last year, 2020. The Woolworths story we speak about refers to a story in October last year. A 17-year-old boy set up a Twitter account named Woolworths UK and tweeted a claim that the brand would be returning to UK high streets. This was picked up by a number of newspapers, including local newspapers, and run as though the claims were true and Woolworths would be reopening on the high street. It was Jim who revealed that the Twitter account had in fact been set up by a sixth former who had managed to dupe the media and the public. I'll include a link to Jim's story in the description. So I thought it uh, might be good to start talking about the Woolworth story, which I know we spoke about a little while ago, because I thought that that was uh, quite telling about local news and the way that it works now. I don't know if you'd be happy to sort of tell me a bit about what you thought about local newspapers sort of jumping on a tweet that, that maybe didn't take the time to check and verify. One of, one of the the weirdest things in the last few years has been local news sites not becoming very obsessed with their local area. So you see that there's always going to be more traffic in writing up a national story for a local site and then getting loads of people from outside the area clicking on it, but not really serving you core readership. And that Woolworths story, this Woolworths thing where uh, a teenager made up a fake account, uh, claimed that Woolworths was coming back to the high street. It takes every box for nostalgia it'll get everyone talking it's a great little way of trolling the public um and then blow me within an hour or two it had gone from a twitter account with a couple of thousand followers to being covered on almost every single local news site in the uk people were doing sort of your memories of every town's Woolworths as it comes back um and it kind of exposed for me although no one was really harmed by that story apart from the embarrassment of hundreds of news sites running a completely fake piece it kind of summed up one of the real issues with local news at the moment in the uk which is it's so dependent on ad revenue and the bosses just want clicks at all costs that you end up writing stuff that just isn't really that relevant and isn't really that true and destroys the enormous trust that people have in their local papers compared to national papers people tend to have negative connotations of national papers compared to uh, their local trusted one because they trust the one to get it right in their in their in their regional area um, and so it just sort of summed up a real sort of sense that the the bosses in London were telling people what to write based on what the statistics were saying rather than just leaving it to reporters working their beats to get stories that are relevant yeah I think I'd agree that wasn't like our proudest day it was a bit of a um, cock-up considering that we've always been told, told at the moment during coronavirus that our number one thing is to be the trusted news and be giving you know like answering people's questions and you know quelling down the rumors I mean I was also wondering what you thought about all of this new sort of disinformation reporting do you think there's a place for that in local news because I definitely see at council meetings there are more people coming in saying you know, what about the 5G and things like that? What do you think about that sort of new branch of journalism? Um, so I was doing disinformation reporting at BuzzFeed, which was one of the sort of pioneers in this area long before it was really uh, a big thing. And we always used to enjoy taking down viral hoaxes and things that were going around on Facebook. And at the time, for a very long time, governments and um, mainstream media outlets treated it as something that was happening elsewhere, that Facebook with tens of millions of readers still wasn't nearly as important as the front page of the local print newspaper. And who are you kidding? Like the only thing that matters in media is do you have an audience? And that audience can be big or small. Uh, but if you don't have the audience that you're trying to reach, then you can't influence them. 
And the problem for a lot of the media is that it's been pretending that if something is on the 10 o'clock news or the six o'clock news or on the front page of a print paper, then it can still shape the narrative. While basically editors have been putting their fingers in their ears and ignoring the fact that for five, six years now, vast majority of the UK has been getting their news from uh, social media stuff shared by their mates and the local WhatsApp group. I can't believe we're still talking about this as a, as a relatively new thing when you just have to look around you and see that it's been going on for the best part of a decade. And with stuff like 5G, I mean, I remember protests against 3G mobile networks in the York area in the mid 2000s and uh, the village near where I grew up, um, Sheriff Hutton, poured concrete into the base of one of those masks to stop it going online. So the York Press covered that at length at the time um, and probably gave far too much credence to the people claiming it was going to rot their brains. But, you know, so these things have already be, always been around. It's just that it used to be quite hard. If you wanted to get publicity for it, you had to convince the local paper to give you a hearing. And now there'll just be a series of local Facebook groups where you can just spam them obsessively. And the crazies will always rise to the top because they have more time to post more stuff. And that, that will then filter up into what's in councillors' inboxes. And there's a sort of idea which is that the sheer amount of time that well-meaning officials can take dealing with this information is enormous. So if some idea goes round that coronavirus is caused by mobile phone masks, it's not just two or three letters through the post now, it's incessant tweets, it's constant emails, and it's from far more people than before. And you can basically just get bogged down by this stuff. So you just choose not to push ahead with the, the changes, simply almost have an easier life for yourself if you're in a council official. I mean, do you read local newspapers? I mean, you mentioned that you'd read about that in the York Press in the 2000s. I don't think many people of our age get a local paper anymore, unfortunately. No, I mean, I, I, I can't remember when I last bought a print paper, and that includes national papers. I read everything online, and I pay for a lot of sites online. I grew up near York. I was born in New York. I'm very proud to be a York City supporter, and I read the York Press daily still, despite not having actually lived in York full-time for about 15 years now. Um, and I also read York Mix and I keep up with many accounts relating to the city and I feel I have a really good idea of what's going on. Ironically, I now live in ish London and have a much worse idea of what's going on because it isn't really a local paper of note keeping on top of these things. Um, weirdly, one of the things is that London has very, very poor local news coverage compared to smaller towns and cities across the UK because there just isn't that same sense of local identity and people tend to feel served by the nationals. So weirdly, I know much more about the planning disputes and cycle lanes of York than I do about most of the streets near my house definitely up north local news is, is a thing and people feel like it represents them a bit better and all the reporters are based in the towns where they work uh, usually and i think that that probably makes a difference because i'll get stopped on the way to the shops by someone i know to tell me about something i mean you mentioned york mix what do you think about hyperlocals? because i do worry that there's if we have a paywall on local news there are people who can't afford to or won't want to subscribe to that so they, that's, that area of news won't be available to them. Um, I think York Mix is brilliant. Um, and uh, I also think that um, 
there's it's a, a serious shame what's happened to some of the really established names who I used to love reading at the York Press, um, like Charles Hutchinson and, and Dave Flett, who due to endless rounds of cost cutting have have gone. Um, and they really sort of give the paper a soul. And the problem is if you cut the content, eventually people start to drift away and it becomes harder and harder to convince people to pay. I think it's terrible for democracy if information about a city goes entirely behind a paywall. Uh, the problem is I haven't really come up with a decent way of, of funding it. And so I think, I think the future for local news is probably going to be a weird combination of sort of eating out and drinking stuff provided by ad-supported sites and sort of heavy-duty reporting on councils provided with public funding or with charitable funding, a bit like the local democracy scheme that supports yourself. And unfortunately, I don't really see in a city the size of York that there's enough people who'd be willing to pay to support a full-service news outlet online. But there are enough York City supporters who might be willing to um, pay for some insight. Uh, there are enough people who really, really care about knowing the latest on the restaurant news in York, you might be up for reading a newsletter run by one person that has advertising and that could pay that person's salary. I kind of feel you're reaching the point where the idea of having everything together in one package in mid-sized towns and cities just isn't going to be financially viable for much longer. I think it's kind of sad that uh, it loses something of the identity. The, the, some, I mean, there are positives to it. I mean, the, the, the sort of desperate search for a angry person pointing at a pothole to fill a page five lead isn't necessary, really. You don't need it. And you don't necessarily need some of the stuff that people used to spend a lot of time on. It's a shame to lose some of the features, but, you know, you, you can just push ahead with, doing better quality stuff and hoping that people respond to it. Unfortunately, the public being as they are also do just tend to click on things that are shocking or horrifying or share that WhatsApp message claiming that someone's up to no good rather than actually wait for the reported version to come out. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not even that really. If you look at our most read on sort of an almost daily basis, it's like what's in the middle aisle at Aldi is the best performing thing. that There is, there is, a, real, there is a real issue with trying to make people eat their greens in terms of news how do you make people take an interest in their local council um i used to after school every day the york press was always around and i would maybe flick through and then i kind of got into supporting the football club because the local paper was covering them and it sounded fun and i remember you know york beating man united and it being on the front page and us arguing over who got to be york city and who had to be man united in the playground um but the you, you sort of picked up like what was going on at the council because you were picking it up for the cinema times and that kind of passive consumption of the proper stuff because it was in front of you is quite hard and i don't know how you recreate that online um i'm not sure there necessarily is an answer and it gets that's quite hard it's 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 good if people know who they're voting for people need to know when they go into the ballot box uh, when they go into the uh, go to cast their ballot um that the councillor they're voting for represents this, this and this, or else they're just essentially casting it blind. Do you think that's, uh, the you know, the entertaining stuff is as important though? I mean, they're just as valuable, aren't they? Just to hear about the silly and slightly amusing things that go on in the community. Um, preposter preposterous, stupid things are great. I mean, I love silly stories. And one of the great cries in every like 
guardian meeting is where's 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 the joy have we got any fun something fun to enliven it people don't want to be told their lives are terrible the whole time not everything is about uh, parking disputes but it, it's quite hard to get the tone right nowadays and it's quite hard to it's quite hard to find something that hasn't already gone viral on facebook because someone's put the pictures up there already and that's that's one of the real that's one of the real conundrums is getting is working out really what you need to do and 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 what people expect and how you bring them in with some light stuff but keep them there for the heavy stuff. I, I do think that something like a newsletter, which is kind of how local papers started out, um, you know, centuries ago, would be a not terrible way of going about rebuilding local news. If you had just a daily digest that landed in what's going on in York, here's a couple of nice snippets, here's a bit of gossip, and uh, essentially kind of a glorified parish newsletter again. But uh, uh, that, that might be a way out of this. But all of this is, is essentially a conundrum between do you serve a middle class business and, uh, and local government elite who care very deeply about you know, local taxes and things like that? Or do you care a general population who really just want to know what is Oldie's Middle Isle uh, in, in York, Clifton Moor today? Like, what, what have they got? And, 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 you know, who is the most important audience? And, and is there any way of sort of making people who just want to know what time, time Oldie is open into people who want to read about local democracy? Probably, but it's quite hard. Well, that's what you sort of did at BuzzFeed, isn't it? You managed to uh, make shareable content often about things that was that, that were, you know, worth reading and sort of more public interest. Um, it's striking that balance between making a story that is important, also shareable, which is... We tried. We didn't always succeed. Um, it's very hard. You can't... You fund, I always used to think there was like a maximum audience for a piece, and that was the aim with it. So that if realistically... You know, if, if it lo the problem is a local news site, editors who don't really understand the internet will tend to go, fantastic, you got 200,000 clicks on that write-up of Strictly Come Dancing uh, with a slight local angle. That means it was the best thing we published yesterday. But actually, the piece that you'd have thought would have bombed, maybe an in-depth guide to the uh, thinking behind York's new cycle lanes, which inexplicably maybe did 40,000 views, that's brilliant. Maybe that was really well read within York itself, really made those 40,000 people go, God, I really understand what's going on in my city a lot more. And that's way better than the piece that did five times the traffic. So it, 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 it's, it's very hard to measure it. And I don't think readers realise just how much news now is measured in terms of just raw clicks. And that doesn't take into account whether people are caring about it, whether they're actually reading it, whether they're actually engaging with it. And, and one thing I did learn at BuzzFeed, which we really had a great news operation um, for a few years, is that people really respond to quality. And if you put the effort in and you make things good and interesting and tell them something new, then they will read to the end and they'll say, this is great. Well, I mean, your job now is quite broad and wide ranging. Is that quite self-directed? Do you get to sort of bring in... Ooh, um no, I don't think my editors would say I, I get to choose what I write. Um, I, to a certain extent, it's up to me to find stories. So I, I cover the media for The Guardian, and that is a that can mean everything from disinformation to what Downing Street is doing to um, 
the business of of the media uh it's basically how information flows around and it's great it's a really really fun job but it also it's also sometimes a bit depressing because it can feel a bit like you're the grim reaper who just turns up just before yet another news outlet is about to sack a hundred people um and it does feel sometimes like i'm sort of the chronicler of of, of the end of, uh, of news as we knew it um, which is why I'm trying to look to places that are doing things differently and building out and trying something new because there is still a demand for local news. There is still uh, a number of outlets. There are still a number of outlets who are doing really good stuff. And I am optimistic that at the end of this, there'll be a shakedown with new younger editors who really get how to do this without going for really trash clickbait because Trash clickbait is not going to be a sustainable business model for local papers. It just isn't. I mean, you know, even we were talking about talk about your mix a lot more than we talk about the press, because um, they've just launched their radio station, haven't they, to sort of replace Minster after Minster was closed by that takeover, or not closed, but turned into Greatest Hits. What do you think of that sort of thing? I mean, they're sort of branching out into more, I suppose, more in, more expensive projects, really. As someone who grew up listening to Minster FM obsessively and therefore has a, a really good knowledge of, of cheesy 80s pop as a result, uh, it was gutting when it closed down, but I kind of get where radio is going. Radio is, um, particularly on a local level, quite a hard sell. And unfortunately, not enough people really care whether the presenters are truly local and talking about what's going on um, on York uh, high street and the the problem with that is that i don't really see how they couldn't make the sums add up at minister fm long term but that a small radio station online only will get an audience what i do think there is a lot of space for local podcasts that feels like something that has a lot more potential than listening live i might be wrong i, I want all the york mix people to tell me why i'm exactly why i'm wrong on this um, but podcasts feel like a real thing where you could have a really core loyal audience if you deliver a really good product once a week um, on what's going on in the city, an interview produced really to high standards using people who used to work on Minster FM would do really well on that. Um, and I think also that would be particularly appealing to local advertisers because podcasts are a very personal experience and you can charge quite a lot because you've got a definite captive audience. The only people who are going to be listening to a York podcast are going to be people who have a real interest in York and you don't meet, need many thousand of those before that's a really valuable audience. So I think a lot of journalists don't spend enough time thinking about the business model of the outlet they're working for um, because if you don't understand the business model you don't understand your audience and then you end up out of a job soon enough. Um, to sort of just keep doing things the way they used to be done and hoping that somehow it'll turn around just seems like madness. These things are also always way too centralised um, and always sort of done by a one-size-fits-all um, expectation from these big newspaper groups that their staff have the time to make a high-quality product. You can't cut corners on this stuff. You've got to put money into it. Not a lot of money, but you've got to put some money into it. And unfortunately, local paper groups for so long have starved their publication of investment. And there just isn't enough cash in the system to have the slack that's required for innovation. And that, that's one of the real issues, that it wouldn't take much money to 
sort of start afresh with a lot of these places and build up a sustainable model for local news. But too often the issue is paying down the pension debts of the, the previous owners or dealing with the, the legacy costs or, or just uh, bosses imposing yet another round of redundancies. And that, that's the real issue is that the staff are brilliant. They really want to be breaking stuff. They don't want to be rewriting another Woolworth story, but they have to because that's what the edict is from HQ. Do you have any sort of tips or ideas for the future of what you'd like to see from local news and from local news reporters? Um, I, my main concern is that we sort of now got to the point where there's a whole generation of reporters who've been taught that clicks are what matters above all else. And that feels quite dangerous. At The Guardian, we increasingly judge articles by whether they were read to the end rather than just how many clicks they got. And that feels like a very good measure because if someone is sort of cheated into clicking on a headline, then feels annoyed that it didn't fulfill their desires, then they won't click again. Whereas if you can see consistently, all right, when weirdly, when we really write about that topic, people love it and really, really read to the end, then that's, that's a good sign. I think there's a, a couple of things I'd suggest for local news. Just really focus on your local core audience, understand who they are and write for them consistently. Deliver them the same product in a consistent manner with good stories and things they didn't already know. And you don't need a lot of journalists to do that well. Cut some of the stuff that you've always done as filler. You don't need to write up every charity event as a standalone news story, you can just include a link to it, the internet exists, and instead put your resources into things that, that people really, really care about. And you can still have some fun. You can still be slightly mocking with the format. You can, you can cover the biggest chip competition. People still like that, it's funny, but you can do it with a knowing wink. Um, and you can mix that all up, and hopefully there's an audience for that. Um, people still like to see their name and face in the paper, pick up the phone, talk to people. Uh, just think of some way that you can make it so that people will be going in the pub going, did you see that thing in name of the media outlet? That's got to be the test of a local news outlet. Because if people aren't talking about you, aren't getting annoyed at how you covered it, aren't getting pleased at how you covered it, then you haven't really got an audience. You've just got a load of passive consumers. The local democracy scheme, I think, is great and I think has basically saved council coverage in the UK um, and is absolutely amazing. The reality is that lots of places wouldn't be covering their local uh, politics world very much without it. So it's it, there's no choice, really. I mean, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have any coverage a lot of the time. Um, and I think it basically shows the way forwards. I don't really see how that isn't the model for a lot of local news in the future, some sort of state-subsidised newswire that provides a couple of journalists in each area to cover the emergency services, the local politics world, and a couple of things. Now, I think there's problems with that because it's not your role as a local democracy reporter to campaign on issues, to put pressure on on political parties to change their mind with campaigning local journalism and that is a bit of a flaw if you end up with everything being quite straight is that when a publication needs a voice it can't necessarily be provided if if it's not a case where there's a debate on both sides but someone has really screwed up I kind of wish that some of the great local newspaper brands could be rescued from some of the companies that run them, not all of them, but some of them, um, and just given 
a limited amount of investment, um, some real thought about how to serve an audience at a local level, and frankly, get some philanthropists involved. There's a lot of rich people in Yorkshire behind the scenes. And if you just said, look, for um, 500 grand a year, you could dip in your pocket and make a real difference to the reporting of Yorkshire. Uh, you know, 500 grand a year to hire, uh, you know, 10, 15 journalists and provide the technical back end. That is not a lot of money in the scale of things, but it could make a real difference and just say, if you can guarantee us that for five years, um, we will have a sustainable business model at the end of it. The impact on, 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 on the whole Northern media would be incredible. And you could have a real powerhouse of an outlet, but that takes a lot of thinking, entrepreneurialism, and talent that has kind of seeped away from a lot of local media, and that's a real problem. Well, I'm, I'm conscious that you will need to get going because you've got a busy day. I think that that's everything that I wanted to speak about. Unless there was anything else that you wanted to mention, yeah, just that I really, really love um, reporting that does that tells you things you don't know and it's so brilliant when you find out something about your local area that you didn't know people love local history people love understanding why that why their bin collection is late they 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 care about this stuff and it's often dismissed as boring but i can bet you that if you sort of did an inside how your rubbish is sorted inside how your parking space is allocated these are the boring little things that affect our daily lives and too often there's been a rush to kind of trash human interest stories and actually the nuts and bolts of how local government works has been abandoned uh, and and it's it's really really important because if you don't have people understanding basic stuff like that then then you, you start to see democracy fraying and you end up with people blaming everything on the council. And it's good for the council to be open because otherwise everything becomes um, a sort of black box, which, uh, you know, if they explain, well, the reason we can't do this is because local, uh, you know, national government has imposed these cuts. If the reason that we can't uh, sort this park out is because this is the issue that's blocking the development and those residents are objecting. And the reason your rent is too high is because no one in York will ever let you build any bloody housing. Then, you know, they've got to be able to get their message across. And, and therefore, there seems to me a pretty good case for either public or philanthropists to provide funding um, for local news, because otherwise you just end up with an ignorant population. And that's everything for this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to Jim Waterson for taking the time to chat. I really enjoyed chatting to Jim and he very kindly gave me some ideas for some stories to run about York over Christmas, which I did publish over the Christmas break. And if you don't already follow Jim on Twitter, you can find him at Jim Waterson. If you're interested in getting involved in the podcast or just want to say hello, please do get in touch on Twitter through at the headlines pod or at Chloe Lavasuch. And I'll hope to see you again next week. Thanks so much. Bye.